Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Greetings and felicitations, children of technology. Welcome to episode 84 of Agitators Anonymous. I am Alan Averill, just the singer in a heavy metal band. Not a particularly educated man, and certainly not a historian. Um, I could have rhymed that better, couldn't I? Could be written on my tombstone. Anyway, episode 84 is a look at the life and times of Gregory... Yefemovich Rasputin. He seems to fit all the criteria for my heavy metal heroes ramshackle series. So let's add him to the uh, lexicon of people. His influence and reach, I think, far outstrips most likely almost everyone else I've done this about. Um, he certainly had a very great reach right into the right into the heart of early twentieth century. Russian society, and therefore quite an influence on the world as a whole. So, Rasputin, you may probably know him well. You would know his um, legendary diabolical stare from the cover of the Typo Negative album, Dead Again. His piercing stare, uh, still able to transfix people more than 100, 120 years later. And his extraordinary story is really beyond comprehension. Doing some studying for this um, is really, it really kind of blows your mind because uh, the fact, the facts behind it just seem so extraordinary, so incredible. Um, and all of the things that he managed to fit in 
in um, his four, you know less than 50 years on the planet is quite incredible. Um, you probably also know him from the song Ra Ra Rasputin, blah 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 blah, but whatever it is by Boney M. Sorry for that poor rendition of Rasputin there. Um, odd enough, Boney M. Trying to learn some of their stuff on the bass is very very difficult. But didn't weren't they supposed to have not played on their albums? I'm not sure. I digress. Anyway, Rasputin is a particularly interesting and captivating figure. Um, and you certainly should go and use the Gulag search engine, the Google search engine, and look at some of the old pictures of the time. Uh, they're really quite revealing. There's some very, very interesting portraits of all the people that I'm going to mention. And I will also say, I apologize for the butchering of some of the city and town names, some of the names of the people involved, and a few shuffles in the timeline, because sometimes getting to the um, exact exact uh, details are quite difficult. There's various different documentaries out there and different books, and some of them are a little bit, um, you know, shall we say, fly-by-night with some of the details, and some of them are really exacting. And so trying to find what is and isn't uh, fact and fiction, as I said, is a little bit difficult. But let's get into it. Rasputin. As I said, I'm just the singer in a heavy metal band. Um, he was born in a town called Proskovsky, Pros Prokofsky? Prokofsky, in Siberia on January the 10th, 1869. Um, Siberia had long been a, a place on the fringes. I mean, I, I think it still is. Um, a place on the fringes of civilization, perhaps even beyond the fringe, a true vast frontier where um, criminals, uh, mystics and people who Russian society has not wanted um, to deal with were dumped, um, dumped is the wrong word, but sent into exile. Um, as we'll see, even the, um, some of the main protagonists in this story were sent to exile in um, Siberia, i.e. the Romanovs. Um, and its vast emptiness seemed to um, occupy, obsess um, a certain part of the Russian psyche. Um, and, you know, it must be said, a certain part of all our psyches. We've all heard or imagined or seen pictures of the vast Siberian wilderness, one of the last f um, great frontiers left in the world that realistically is still more or less undiscovered to, uh, to a degree. It's where people who were, you know, as I said, were exiled there, who did not fit into Russia. And then in the late 19th century, it was no different. And it was here, as I said, in the town of Prokofsky, uh, the Rasputin was born and where he emerged from, from the Siberian wilderness, from literally nowhere, from peasant, uh, from a peasant village in the wilderness to having um, a great grip on um the history of the early 20th century. How did he do that? The story is incredible. As a young man, it was claimed he was the eighth born, with all previous seven brothers and sisters having died before adulthood. Um, there are stories that he watched his own brother drown as a teenager. Um, he slipped below the ice and, they, and was unable to be saved, and this has supposedly affected Rasputin very greatly. Now, trying to get to the truth of whether he was or was not the eighth born, of course, some people like to embellish the story by saying he was the seventh born and therefore 
as you can see, you get a, you know, the story will take on its own legend that he was the seventh born of the seventh born, which is not true. Um, but at the same time, finding the exact details are, are a little bit difficult. But it would seem he is the eighth born of, um, uh, in his two peasant uh, parents who were um, horse breeders. It was very quickly as a teenager he began to have a reputation in his small town. His family reared horses um, and it was very clear at a young age that um, the young Rasputin seemed to have healing powers. He seemed to be able to heal and calm horses and animals and was renowned for this throughout his village. Feared, renowned, loved, loathed. It all seems to have been... Um, heaped upon him in equal measure throughout his life. But as a teenager, he had more of a reputation as an alcoholic horse thief. But yet, as I said, was believed by his fellow villagers to have the ability to heal. As I said, he was feared, loathed, and loved, it would seem, in equal measure, which would persist throughout his life. But it seems he pushed his fellow villagers a bit too far. And it was on being banished from the town, he found refuge in a monastery. It seems that many people, I suppose, um, as they say in Aboriginal terms, just go walk about. And it seems that this was common in Siberia as well, that many self-proclaimed mystics simply travelled from town to town in Siberia. They simply just disappeared into the wilderness in Siberia looking for revelation. It's, it's not an uncommon theme in the late 19th century that um, many countries throughout Europe would have had these traveling, these traveling monks, these traveling religious men. Anyway, he banished from his village, more or less kicked out, let's say. Um, he found this monastery and he stayed there for months. Um, and he decided that this was his calling. Um, he became a monk, a priest. And it would seem, if I haven't got this incorrect, that there just so happened to be in that monastery a man called Makari, Makarish, Makari. Um, who used to be at one stage a former spiritual advisor in the royal palace in St. Petersburg, which was then the capital of Russia. And um, a young Rasputin decided that this must also be his calling. It said that the Virgin Mary, or he, is, he said that the Virgin Mary herself told him that he must advise the Romanovs. And in what seems like um, a moment of madness to me, how quite this would work or how they thought that any of this would work. But as we will see, that um, late 19th century Russian society and the early, at the turn of the century, was gripped by um, a sense or a wish to have spirituality, let's say occultism, right at the heart of it. Um, it wrote him a letter of introduction to the Romanovs, to the royal family, no less, at the time. So in this moment, he, uh, young Rasputin is 20 years old. He has four children. He's married. Um, and he simply walks out of his village. He simply leaves his village and begins to wander Siberia, often dressed in heavy shackles to inflict pain on himself as he's walking. Flagellation, I guess they call it. Um... He's enduring all sorts of extreme weather um, equally, dressed in rags, refuses to bathe. Well, I'm not sure even if he, <laughs> if he refused or not, he would have the option. It was rumoured, uh, according to one 
um, thing I read that he made it to Kazan, which I presume is Kazakhstan, uh, and to Greece, although that seems somehow fanciful, quite how he made it to Greece. So I presume that that's just a flight of fancy added to um, somehow make him that little bit more... Well, I don't know. Somebody seems to have added it anyway. He certainly wandered for months and months through the Siberian wilderness, going from village to village, spending most of his time alone. He often talked about how one could only know God if one was to spend time in the wilderness and be privy to its hardships. And certainly this was very few um, more... There was very few places in the world where doing such a thing would have been quite as hard. I can only imagine maybe being in the desert itself. So I'm sure there is some desert equivalent of Rasputin in, um, you know, African mythology somewhere who I must uncover. In fact, doing a podcast on King Midas might be very interesting. Yes, he was indeed a real person, Malian king. Anyway, I digress. Um... But one thing about the roaming Rasputin is that he seems to captivate and obsess people. And there seems the little doubt that during this time he came across an obscure religious sect called the Callisti, Callisti um, who I think perhaps are um, deserving of a podcast of their own and very much heavy metal heroes, if not black metal heroes, because they sound like a diabolical bunch. They gathered in crypts. They believed in the purging of sin through sinning. They were known to dance themselves into frenzy, flagellate themselves, asphyxiate themselves to just before the point of death. They spoke in tongues and at the height of ecstasy collapsed and then woke to descend into orgy. A sexual cult who believed purity and transcendence was attained only by sinning. Sounds all right, huh? You're thinking to yourself, well, the Callisti seems to have been a huge influence on Rasputin and he seems to have embraced this element of sin, this element of purging sin through sinning. And this is, a, you know, something he will carry right to the very end of his life. Um, he returns home back to his village, to his wife. Um, there seems to be little... Uh, in the way of information about how that um, conversation went, but he builds a chapel beneath his house and continues to hold Callisti-style orgiastic congregational meetings. It's shortly after this, Rasputin decides that he must leave, he must follow his calling and go to St. Petersburg. Um, I'll digress here for a little moment um, and discuss St. Petersburg. I've actually been there. We played there with Primordial. Um, we played there with Primordial there and Moscow, of course, as well. And it's really an incredible city. It's um, a kind of like Prague on steroids, if that makes any sense to you. What a very modern and ugly um, reference, but it's absolutely entrancing. I was there in winter; it was snowing. The the huge palaces, the the city is so imposing in a sense of its its grandiose architecture. Um, you can e easily, in easily in my mind, um, I can imagine the uh, the events that are going to unfold. Certainly, it was a, a, a seat of vast 
imperial monarchy, an incredible sort of jewel of the East. Um, I suppose, in a sense, more Western, maybe, in some of its outlook than the rest of Russia, but an absolutely incredible, entrancing place. Um, I found it absolutely... Uh, Absolutely jaw-dropping, to be honest. Anyway, let's get back to the um, narrative about Mr. Rasputin. So he decides to just literally walk to St. Petersburg to make his way on um, small ferries and boats and all this kind of thing. And um, in 1903, he arrives. He arrives in St. Petersburg. Um, and all, it all starts to get a little bit strange <laughs> and curious and odd. And it makes me wonder why nobody has really made a huge film about this. Perhaps there was in the 70s and I missed it. Um, but I don't remember there being a big movie or famous movie about this. I'm, I'm sure, well, I know that Hammer Horror have touched it. But the story is so incredible. It seems that it deserves some more rendition than maybe it has achieved. So anyway, he arrives in St. Petersburg in 1903 and starts to begin to develop a reputation already. And there are two sisters. Um, they're called the Crow Sisters, so-called because of their crow-like features, Montenegrin princesses, mystics. Um, and St. Petersburg at the time, like many cities, Victorian cities or, you know, kind of turn-of-the-century cities, is obsessed. The, the upper-class the aristocratic class are obsessed with mystics and seances and mediums. Um, I mean, it's the same in Ireland. It was the same uh, to a degree in Dublin, in high society. You have the Hellfire Club and that kind of thing in London as well. Victorian society was very, very um, obsessed with an element of mysticism. And this gripped the upper class, the aristocracy, of St. Petersburg at the time. And these Montenegrin um, mystics, these princes, princesses, excuse me, um, one particular called Ilika um, seems to be very taken with Rasputin. And she um, introduces him to the Romanovs. Now, the Romanovs were, um, had been ruling Russia for 300 years. They were, I guess, the equivalent of the Habsburgs or any one of the great... Um, old European um, families, monarchical dynasties, one could call them. And they'd ruled Russia for 300 years. And they were also uh, obsessed, how shall we say, on the lookout for a new mystic, a new um, teacher, a new revelatory persona, figure in their life. And the Tsarina, the Tsar and Tsarina, um, Nicholas II and Alex, uh, Alexandra, they were no exception to the rest of St. Petersburg upper-class high society. Um, and as I said, they were, as it seemed, actively seeking a mystic. And what happened next, or what is about to happen next, is one of the most sort of pivotal moments in the whole story. A bishop and monk by the names of Iliador and Hemogen, um, at the time, they, they uh, accepted the figure of Rasputin into their religious order, into religious life, um, began to sort of vouchsafe for him to some degree. But they said he, when he arrived, he smelt bad. He had no respect for authority, was vulgar and crude. But they also noticed how the ladies of the aristocracy flocked to him. His aura seemed to seize the women of St. Petersburg's high society. 
he had a sort of almost crude, powerful sexuality blended with a sort of religious hypnotism, uh, which inspired devotion. The saint of the salons, they called him. Salons, I suppose, were the equivalent of a form of coffee shop, the sort of um, talk shops of the Victorian era. One often hears them in terms of um, the France in the First World War or where Freud went to discuss things in Viennese society within the salon. Um, but it was at this time that he sealed his fate as a true saint or a true mystic in the eyes of all of these people. Um, the Tsar and Tsarina's son, Alexei, was born uh, a haemophiliac, which at the time there was no cure for. And Rasputin came a-knocking. I mean, I'm sure he heard about the illness of the, um, of the, young, um, of the young Alexei on the grapevine, I suppose, on the royal court grapevine, and came unannounced, came a-knocking, and the young Alexei was more or less bleeding to death. Haemophilia is um, a disease where the blood doesn't clot and you just, from the smallest scrape, you can basically bleed to death if it's a very extreme case. Um, it was a death sentence in 1903. Let's just say it like that. Um, unable to stop the bleeding, the family prepared for the worst and don't forget, this was their only male heir, uh, which was quite important in terms of um, monarchy and hereditary um, inheritance. And Rasputin arrived, was allowed um, to hold court with the Tsar and Tsarina, and as it was, as it said in mythology, ushered out the doctors, ushered everyone out of the room, and preyed on the child as they say. And upon everyone's return to the chambers, they found that the bleeding had stopped. How can we explain this practically? Well, at the time, doctors were in the habit of issuing patients with huge doses of aspirin, which, of course, we know thins the blood. So could this be the key that the um, banishing of the doctors at the time maybe did cha change the child or save the child's life? Of course, if you believe that Rasputin had mystical powers, you can believe that his mystical, magical powers of healing were what saved the child's life. And it would certainly be in keeping with his reputation um, back within his uh, small village of being able to heal animals and um, the like. But however, the young Alexei survives. And for this, the Romanovs are more or less forever indebted to Rasputin. And so they will be until the ends of their life. And he then, how can we say, the child survives and Ratsputin's name is carved in infamy forevermore. And he is now able to reach right into the heart of Russia beyond the reproach of really any man or woman. He comes and goes as he pleases within the royal court and installs himself in an apartment in St. Petersburg. Um, women visit him day and night. He carouses and drinks in the local bars, brought endless prostitutes to the bathhouses. Um, he flagellates them, um, whips them with birch trees um, and tells them that the only way to purge themselves of sin is through sinning. The women hang on his every word, feed him, clothe him and queue up to take care of what would seem his very aggressive sexual appetite 
I guess in modern terms, the word groupie would sum them up. I don't know. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary um, how this, um, you know, unwashed, uh, foul-smelling, rude peasant manages to captivate an entire um, an entire element of St. Petersburg High Society, but this is what he does. Rapacious is a word that would sum Rasputin up. Um, he was rolling with cocaine, rolling with opium, um, all sorts of whatever drugs he could get at the time. Even, it would seem, quite regularly getting high with Tsar Nicholas II. Regularly. He became essentially, you could say, their spiritual advisor, confidant and drug dealer. Um, the other children, um, utterly devoted to him. They loved him, as is evident by their letters. Um, and maybe this explains, well, I mean, maybe if he's taking opium and many other drugs, this would explain his visions, but it would certainly explain how he seemed to be touched by the hand of God to his courtesans. Um, he was basically, at this moment, the most powerful man in Russia, it could be said. And you can just see him scagged out, sitting at the table, um, staring into the middle distance, mumbling to himself and all of these women. And it's quite evident in the pictures that you can find online. Um, hanging on his every word, they used to try and write down his mumbling, saying it was the word of God. It could have been just the equivalent of, Hey, oh, buddy, where's the... Gonna get a breakfast roll. Uh, that's something for Dublin people. They may only understand that if they've ever been... Um, if they speak skag. Anyway, yeah, I digress. Apologies for that. But this makes him, um, 1903, 1904, probably, realistically, the most powerful man in Russia. But he was making enemies, make many, many enemies, you know. So the police, sorry, the police were tailing him. Um, the diaries of his, they, uh, they keep diaries of his whereabouts, and it reads almost like Los Angeles cops trailing Jim Morrison or something um, in the 60s. Maybe I'm making that up or something. But it's almost like a modern late 60s rock star. Drugs, women, drunkenness. Um, I'm listening to the audiobook of Chaos, the new book about Charles Manson, um, which came out recently, which is fascinating. And uh, it, it almost seems that uh, Rasputin had some of the same abilities to just captivate, obsess, entrance people for whatever reason, he, he he was a true cult leader and he had a sort of rock star quality that just seemed to give him this diabolical allure that I suppose in a very staid and tight and mannered upper class society, he seemed like a wild and reckless um, attraction. Anyway, these two priests, as I mentioned earlier, Iliador, which is his nickname, and Hermogen, Hermogen, um, the ones who had helped introduce him to high society, I think are getting a little bit tired of him, a little bit tired of his influence. Um, they attempt to intervene and talk to the Tsarina, Alexandra, who is at this time besotted, it would seem. You know, Ra-Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen, etc. This is the rumours that are... Um, spinning around in the Russian press of the time that Rasputin is actually the lover of the queen. It's unsubstantiated, substantiated. Who knows? It's entirely possible. Her letters um, seem unflinching in their utter devotion to the man. Anyway, particularly Iliador um, wants rid of Rasputin. Attempts counsel with the Tsar and Tsarina, but... 
They banish him. They banish both priests. Um, Hermogen and Iliador are sent into exile. Iliador, and I kid you not, dresses as a woman, which is going to be a theme of, uh, for the end of <laughs> Rasputin's life. Um, he dresses as a woman and escapes to Finland. There you go. Um, uh, but not before he vows to kill Rasputin. So right now we're up to about 1912 or so. Rasputin has about five years to live. Six years, no, let's say four years to live. Probably should know that really if I've been uh, up on my timeline. But yeah, we're up to about 1912, 1913. Um, his list of enemies grows longer and longer. But he returns to his small village, to Prokofsky. He takes the ferry, upon which the police are watching when they record his drunken debauchery on the ferry, exposing himself to people. Um, he really seems to have been quite the diabolical lech. All the diary entries are at times hilarious, but yet also quite shocking, I suppose, on some level. But he returns to his small village, um, where... His wife is still there bringing up his kids. And it is here, if I have the timeline correct. Um, now, this may be a tiny bit muddled, but I think it's pretty on the money. This is where the Tsarina contacts him again by telegraph to say, her son is taken gravely ill once again. The death notices are drawn. And Rasputin sends her a message telling her he will live and to banish the doctors from the room. Um and to not let them hold counsel again with her son. And it seems the same thing happens. Her son survives. Rasputin's power seems to be evident even from hundreds of miles away. He seems to still have the ability to save the young Alexei's life. The death notices are shelved for another while. And so outside the post office where he sends that very same note... Rasputin notices, notices a woman. Now, you should go and take a look on Google Images for this woman. Her name is Guseva. Put in Guseva Rasputin prostitute. And you will see a very brutal image. Um, a prostitute with no nose. Her nose had been cut off in a violent attack by a customer. She literally has a hole in the middle of her face. Um, and it seems that she, obviously with a, a hatred of men who abuse prostitutes, I would imagine, but also it would seem paid off or in contact somehow with the aforementioned um, Iliador has been hired to kill Rasputin. Rasputin spies her standing outside the post office and decides that this looks like a woman he should go over and talk to, to give counsel to, to try and give some religious advice to um, and it's at this time that I sort of would say that there are also, you can, it's a, one very interesting documentary which was made 25 years ago, which is really worth watching, has interviews with people who actually knew him, who were in their 80s and 90s, old women from his village and stuff. And they often talk about his generosity, about how he did use his um, fame and his access to the royal court and their money um, it, with um, absolute abandon. He he almost seems like a kind of a Robin Hood character on some level. He could be at turns lecherous and diabolical, but yet also um, very generous. Um, he would demand 
he had a collection of handwritten notes he would hand out to people saying, please help this person. And he would just give them to poor people. And they were um, handwritten notes by Rasputin was almost like money to people. So his, there are tales of his um, total generosity, which kind of contravene, I suppose, in a sense, the general myth of him being the uh, most evil man in the world. But at this moment, Guseva, this prostitute with no nose, she stabs him. She stabs him outside the post office repeatedly, repeatedly. And she even goes so far as to put her hands in the wounds in his stomach and pull out his intestines in the street. But Rasputin does not die. But on that day, Franz Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand is shot in Sarajevo by Gabriella Princip. Um, and the wheels of World War I slowly begin to turn. This is the same day. Um, and Rasputin is rushed to hospital. And from his hospital bed, he convalesces. He gets better somehow after being stabbed. They pull his, they push his guts back in and stitch him up. But in his absence, um, he's no longer giving daily counsel to the royals, to the Romanovs, to the Tsar and Tsarina. And from his hospital bed, he sends messages, telegrams to Nicholas II, begging him to not enter the war. An ocean of tears we will drown in blood, he predicts. Nicholas, though, riding high on the crest of a wave of patriotism, doesn't heed his warnings. Nicholas II was an unpopular czar. He was always seen as a bit weak, um, as a bit ineffectual. But... He galvanizes, or how shall we say, he rides the tide of patriotism, and never before have people been in the streets calling his name. He decides that Russia must go to war, and they enter the First World War, and does not heed Rasputin's warnings. Anyway, our boy, our boy Raz, our boy Rasputin gets better, and he returns to St. Petersburg. The Tsar Nicholas has left to fight to the front, leaving, um, leaving as he returns Rasputin to be the main influence over the Tsarina and in the royal court. Um, she's been left to more or less oversee the country at that stage. Um, historians debate his power at the time, but certainly within the next couple of years, um, he has the ability to hire and fire ministers. He chooses several who, who fail spectacularly at their job. He is denounced by the Duma as a shadow hanging over the country. He is rumoured to be the lover of the Tsarina once again. Lenin himself mentioned him as a curse, and the Bolsheviks have him in their sights. The first 15 months of World War I are a disaster for the Russians. How many Russians were killed? Some say 2 million, some say up to 4 million by certain um, historians. Nicholas is leading the army himself, and he is no general. They are poorly equipped and badly trained. And at the helm, back in St. Petersburg, Tsarina is running the country into the ground. Revolution is in the air. St. Petersburg, as one, um, as one politician of the time calls it, is like a lunatic asylum. The Bolsheviks are agitating, and Rasputin is their devil. However, Rasputin's health is also deteriorating. His courtesans departing. The sense around St. Petersburg is a little of madness. 
um, his healing powers seem on the wane. He writes of his own death, prophesizing. He says that he will be dead within two years, but also so will the Romanovs. Pershekovich, Czech Dograd, names I can't really pronounce too well. These are names that will come back to haunt our boy Rasputin. But most importantly, a young dandy by the name of Yusupov, um, who swore to rid Russia of Rasputin. Prince Felix Felixovich Yusupov, Count Sumorakov Elston, uh, a Russian aristocrat from the Yusupov family. Now, he's going to become the most important figure in the rest of the story, almost. Um, a young dandy, handsome member of the Yusupov family who were richer than the Romanovs, it must be said. He was, um, he was more used to dressing in women's clothing um, and was a high-society Russian socialite, um, well-known um, dandy and homosexual of the time. Um, and like I said, was more used to cross-dressing and being a socialite, but had vowed to take down Rasputin um, and seize back monarchical power for the true monarchy and out of the hands of the mad monk. Um, and it's quite hilarious, but uh, there's a plot. They plot to kill Rasputin, but our boy Yusupov tells the, his co-conspirators that he does not have a free evening for 12 days because he has 12 parties to attend and that um, he can't attend to the... Um, the uh, murder of Rasputin until he's attended all of his parties. And so we're in the middle of December now. Um, and so, yes, they plot f almost two weeks away that they will, um, they will lure uh, Rasputin to another party. Um, did Yusupov himself have relations with Rasputin? It's possible. Certainly, it's rumoured Rasputin also had relationships with men. It's pretty much... I think, on the money to consider that Rasputin would have got up on anything, to be honest with you. Um, now, the story of Rasputin's death is one of the most mythologized moments of the story, and it kind of is... It overshadows all the rest of it, you know, the rest of his life, and it's one of the most incredible moments, I think, in history, really. It's December 1916. Um, Rasputin is called to a basement dinner party at midnight in the Yusupov Palace, which, you know, doesn't seem out of the ordinary, seeing as he's seen around town um, in one particular hotel called the Astoria, up till all hours, carousing and dancing and um, flashing people and, you know, basically behaving like a drunken lech. Um, and so the Yusupov set the table out as if guests had just been. Rasputin arrives and is told by Yusupov uh, that the Tsarina is upstairs, finishing her socialite duties and would shortly join him and them in the basement for, let's call it, the after-party. Um, yeah, the after-party. Rasputin sits in silence, stares into the distance, as he is known to, um, and eventually gets a bit bored with this and starts to tuck into the tray of cakes. And Yusupov observes him and drinks the wine. All is laced with arsenic, but he does not die. Yusupov is startled. Uh, his company who is with him, who knows the level of arsenic that is um, laced into the food, uh, even more so, even startled even more so. He decides to take evasive action. 
goes upstairs, fetches his gun and returns to the basement. Um, Rasputin has said, did not try and run, did not struggle, and merely just stared straight ahead as if to accept what was about to happen. Yusupov shoots Rasputin. Um, and in my head, I imagine that they do a couple of lines, a high five, have a little cuddle and go, hey, lads up to the party upstairs. Um, it seems to have been done with, um, you know, well, look, that's just, I added that bit in. Um, but they return upstairs. But after a while, Yusupov has a feeling of dread. And he returns to the basement with his doctor, whereupon examining Rasputin, Rasputin opens his eyes. It is said that Yusupov's doctor faints on the spot. Once again, he shoots Rasputin. Twice more, it is said. And heads back upstairs, if I'm, in, if I'm correct with my, um, with my telling of the story. Returns back upstairs. And eventually, they do return downstairs. And the body is gone. Rasputin has gone. He's climbed up the stairs and they find him crawling across the frozen courtyard in December. Somehow still alive. The arsenic didn't kill him. Being shot three times didn't seem to kill him. So they shoot him again. Um, and they bundle him into the back of a car, bag him and take him, drive him out of town and take him to the river. They smash a hole in the ice and dump the body of Rasputin bound into the river. Um, and they think that that's the end of the story. Except, two days later, Rasputin's body turns up on the shore of the river in downtown, again in St. Petersburg. Found by locals, an autopsy reveals it is said he had water in his lungs, indicating he was still breathing, still alive, when they tipped him into the freezing water. And some say... He even had his arms aloft, as if he was clawing at the frozen ice. He's buried, but the locals dig him up and burn his body, scared he would return as, you got it, a zombie. <laughs> I kid you not. Apparently not before they cut off his penis, which is in a museum in St. Petersburg. I told you it was a crazy story. However, Rasputin is dead. Rasputin is dead, finally, but his prophecy comes to pass. The Bolshevik Revolution happens. The Romanov's 304-year-old reign over Russia is over. In, 19, in 1917, Tsar Nicholas II abdicates. His family end up exiled in Siberia, in Ekating, Ekaterinburg, Ekaterinburg, exiled in Siberia, where Rasputin himself came from. Civil war rages in Russia, uh, the white army fighting the monarchical side. And it seems they were headed for Ekaterinburg to liberate the Romanovs, to return them to the throne, perhaps. The Bolsheviks, they're not having this. And in July 1918, when Nicholas II and his family, who'd been held under house arrest for more than a year, they were brutally executed by a drunken um, by 11 drunken Bolshevik soldiers, it is claimed, um, shot in a basement of the house they were under house arrest within. Chopped up, doused with acid and burnt. It's hard to emphasise the impact on history this one peasant from Siberia had. Could he have counselled Nicholas not to enter the war if he was in the court? 
might he have stopped even the revolution? It's hard to say. The First World War shifted society and the old monarchies and the feudal systems they represented. And it seems unavoidable. They were losing power and losing influence. Um, was the revolution avoidable? I would probably say not. Um, I would say the overwhelming probability was that it would happen. And the reasons were probably beyond the influence of Rasputin. But, as we've seen, such actions can turn uh, on a dime, as they say, if that's the wrong analogy. And who knows what might have happened if Rasputin had still been in the court and tried to cancel Nicholas II from not entering the First World War. The rest, as they say, is history. I told you, it's a fucking crazy story. All right, Agitators Anonymous, that was the life of Gregory Rasputin, the Mad Monk, over and out. If you wish to support the show um, and support me, I suppose, you can go over to my Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash Alan Averill. I do other podcasts. There's rehearsals, all sorts of other music and this and that and the other. Go over and have a look. There's no tears. You can do it for a dollar a month, etc. All right. Over and out, planet Satan. Hail to you, Rasputin.